Last week, we talked about yet another round of brilliant scientists who followed in the path of Waxman and Schatz, digging through the dirt for new antibiotics. That trend continues on this week. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? However, I'd like to go back in time a little first and talk about one Eli Lilly. The first Colonel Eli Lilly founded a company that he called Eli Lilly back in 1906, which was founded as the only house in the West devoted exclusively to the sale of pharmaceutical goods, with pharmaceutical goods in all capitals, so you really, really know they're about those pharmaceutical goods. At the time, that mostly included herbal concoctions, with bizarre names like Bear's Food, Skull Cup, and Wormseed. His grandson, unfortunately for us also named Eli Lilly, graduated from the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy just a year later in 1907, and took over the company shortly after. Lilly the Younger was quite a character, with a wide range of interests, including Native American archaeology, Chinese painting and pottery, amateur poetry and writing, and self-help manuals. All three Lilies, the grandfather, grandson, and the company, did very well for themselves, but also did a lot of good. In 1906, they provided free pharmaceuticals to San Francisco earthquake victims. In 1923, they introduced the first commercially available insulin, which was the first treatment possible for diabetes. And in 1928, they contributed to the discovery of liver extract in the treatment of pernicious anemia, a life-threatening blood disorder, which netted the related researchers a Nobel Prize. During World War II, they provided massive amounts of plasma for American troops. The Lillies also personally threw tons of money at charity, and they were among the top six most generous American philanthropists of their lifetimes. I'm pointing out all the good that they did right now, because in this upcoming instance, Eli Lilly and company are a little less heroic and a bit more cold and corporate. Eli Lilly and company become players in our antibiotic story in the 1940s. Eli Lilly, as a corporation, has thus far never been a major player. They were a producer of penicillin and a distributor of streptomycin, but they didn't have any antibiotic of their own yet. But, learning from the experiences of Waxman and Schatz, they began exploring soil around the globe. For once, exploring around the world actually pays off, and the new drug does not come from the American Midwest. In 1949, Filipino doctor Abelardo Aguilar was working for Eli Lilly, the company, although I guess also the people too, and like hundreds if not thousands of other scientists, he was collecting and investigating soil samples, just as many of our heroes in previous episodes already have. I presume at least thousands, because he was designated code number 12559 just at Eli Lilly alone. He was testing on bacteria he had taken from soil samples in his backyard in the Iloilo province of the Philippines, when he found Streptomyces erythreus, a new bacteria with a new antibiotic. I'd like to take a quick detour at this point to give Dr. Aguilar some recognition here. We'll have plenty of time to talk about the new antibiotic, but first, Dr. Aguilar deserves a lot better than he got, and this is the least that I can do. Aguilar at this point had been working for Lilly for over a year when he made the discovery, continually seeking new antibiotics. You've probably noticed by now that antibiotic discovery has become a massive team effort. Gone are the days when a single name alone would be associated with a miracle drug like Alec Fleming. But Dr. Aguilar deserves some real recognition, I would think, for sending in the sample that led to an entire new class of antibiotics. Instead, he just gets empty promises. Although he's a point of pride for Filipino people and from that state, it was difficult to find just about any information on him, save a few articles from newspapers in his tribute. 
Three years after the initial discovery, after a massive production plant had opened, and Lily had garnered millions of dollars in sales, Aguilar received a letter from the Far East District Manager, basically telling him, good work, you've made the company millions of dollars. Which is nice, but it also promised him a trip to Indianapolis, to see for himself the manufacturing plant that his discovery had led to. When he never heard back, he wrote to the president of Lilly, stating that, quote, I am proud to inform you that for eight years now, I have been faithfully and loyally working with Eli Lilly International Corporation. A leave of absence is all I ask, as I do not wish to sever my connection with a great company, which has given me wonderful breaks in life, end quote. He never heard back from the president either about the trip or even about the leave of absence. Aguilar never sees any great benefit, not even a major promotion, and he never gets a chance to further explore his scientific talents. Eventually, he resigns from Eli Lilly to start a private practice where he was known as a doctor of the poor, consistently taking patients who could not cover their medical costs. In 1993, he sends one last letter to Eli Lilly, requesting $500 million from them in order to create a foundation to help sickly and poor Filipinos. It's a big ask, probably too big if we're being honest, but as before, he never heard back at all, and he died a poor man. On one hand, scientific endeavors are massive projects, which I think at this point I've hit home. They require effort and collaboration between many, many people, but I can't help but to feel that at the bare minimum, Aguilar probably deserved a promotion, if not at least some vacation time. Like I said, he passed away a while ago, but I hope that these few paragraphs can make his name a little better known. It's not the promotion he was looking for, but it's the best that I can do. Now that Aguilar has gotten the best dues I could give him, let's keep on with the story of erythromycin, which is what the antibiotic Aguilar discovered will eventually be known as. Aguilar sends his new bacteria sample back to James McGuire at the Indianapolis headquarters, where they discover its potency as an antibiotic. I wish I had more on McGuire too, but I couldn't find any information on him either, besides that he worked at Lilly and filed for the patent on erythromycin, so he unfortunately will not also get a few paragraphs detailing his life. In 1951, Lilly & Co. filed for a patent on erythromycin, which was granted in 1953. At this point, they had no idea what the actual antibiotic was, but luckily you don't need to know how it's structured or how it works if you just grow a bunch of the organism and harvest the drug directly, which Lilly did. In 1953, Elo Tyson hit shelves, the new brand name for erythromycin. Unfortunately for Lilly, erythromycin didn't quite take over the antibiotic market like tetracyclines did. Although erythromycin was not as revolutionary as, say, tetracycline, it was an important discovery in that it provided a targeted alternative to penicillin. An alternative to penicillin was especially useful when it came to those who had allergic reactions, such as yours truly, who breaks out in rashes in response. Like penicillin, erythromycin targets gram-positive bacteria, with a few extras thrown in for good measure. It does so with a completely different method of attack. Penicillin erodes the cell walls of bacteria, but instead erythromycin prevents the bacteria from producing some vital proteins. Antibiotics with this structure and effect on bacteria came to be known as macrolides, and erythromycin was the first one, spawning further research to improve upon the properties of erythromycin, as all first drugs of their kind tend to do. Despite a number of other macrolides being developed in the ensuing decades, we still didn't actually figure out of the structure of them until the 1980s, some three decades later. Robert Burns Woodward, who you might remember from last week as our chemistry prodigy, is actually credited with figuring this one out. Even he, in all his genius, said, quote, 
Erythromycin, with all our advantages, looks at present quite hopelessly complex, end quote. This coming from the guy who figured out tetracycline structures, supposedly by writing down everything on cardboard and then just figuring it out. He wasn't kidding either. If you've been keeping up with the images I've been linking, you've seen the kind of complicated structures of beta-lactams and tetracyclines already. Macrolides, the class of drugs that erythromycin falls into, are a whole different beast. Check out the images I've linked out to see for yourself, and even go back and compare with the previous photos if you'd like to. Just check the show notes. Not only was the structure of macrolides incredibly complicated, but figuring out the mechanism by which they worked also took a long time. No surprise there. A number of papers, the earliest of which are dated in the 1990s, indicate that macrolides work by inhibiting protein synthesis in the bacteria it targets, which eventually results in death as the bacteria can no longer properly produce molecules it needs to survive. Erythromycin was not the biggest blockbuster of antibiotics, and chances are, unless you're a clinician of some sort, you probably haven't heard of erythromycin or any of its cousins. However, it was the first macrolide discovered, and as a class of antibiotics, they were the first specific alternative to penicillin that targeted similar diseases with a completely different mechanism. Since macrolides weren't as big of a deal as, say, penicillin or tetracyclines, information was a little bit short, but I still wanted to call out Eli Lilly, both older and younger, Dr. Aguilar, and Mr. McGuire's work, and I personally appreciate this drug since I've got a penicillin allergy myself. Next week, we'll talk about another new class of drugs that brought with it the ability to target even more diseases. However, it also brought with it the first major scandal involving antibiotics, a public relations nightmare that would temper the manias we've seen appear after each antibiotic discovery. As per usual, thanks to all my supporters in any form, but especially my editor, Jojo Tang, the artist Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for our intro and outro music. If you have time, please leave me a review or rating wherever you're listening, or contact me through email, my website, or the Facebook page, all in the show notes. Thanks for listening.